A historian named Donald Creighton once defined history this way. He said, history is the record of encounters between character and circumstance. I don't know if that's a perfect definition of history, but I, but I find it helpful. Oftentimes, we can look back over history, and if you think about how uh, a man or a woman in a certain circumstance, how their character their integrity, or their lack thereof made a big difference. That's a big part of, of what we look at when we look at history. Well, there, there are books in our Bibles that are history books. And, and we are going to start looking at one of those this morning, and we're going to kind of introduce that somewhat, somewhat right now. But all of the history books in our Bibles that tell the stories of a certain time period of redemptive history, you definitely see the encounters between character and circumstance. A couple of years ago now, we read the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. They were originally one book, probably just because of the size of scrolls. They were later divided into two books. But First and Second Samuel is basically about David. Even the part where David's not in it yet, the beginning of 1 Samuel is about how badly Israel needs David before he gets there. They needed the good king. Then we met David and his rise to power, his life, and then and his reign is the rest of 2 Samuel. The book of 1 Kings picks up right where 2 Samuel left off. The beginning of the book of 1 Kings tells of the, the last few days of David's life and David's death. Then we read the treachery and the intrigue regarding who would uh, secede David on the throne. And we learn that it will be David's son with Bathsheba named Solomon who will take the throne. Then we read of the life and the reign of Solomon, and that this is really the glory days of the nation of Israel. Israel at its height of, of power and influence and wealth. And then immediately following the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel divides into two separate countries, north and south. The, the northern kingdom keep, keeps the name Israel, and eventually the, the, the capital will be in a city called Samaria, and that's what we'll see today. The southern nation goes by the name Judah, and that's where Jerusalem is. And in 1 Kings 16... We meet, a, after a long line of kings, we meet one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel named Ahab. And we meet his wife, her name was Jezebel. And then we meet their arch nemesis, a man named Elijah. And we're going to do something a little different starting this morning. We're still going to, uh, I'm still going to teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, as we almost always do. 
But we're not going to do the whole book of 1 Kings and the whole book of 2 Kings. We're going to zero in and really sink our teeth in, starting right here at 1 Kings chapter 16 or the end of it, so that we can really sink our teeth into the story of the prophet Elijah. And then in 2 Kings, his replacement, a prophet named Elisha. That's what we're going to pick up. That's where we're going to begin this morning. So we are in 874 BC when Ahab becomes king in Samaria over the northern nation of Israel. And then at the very end of what we read today, we're going to, read, we're going to meet Elijah, who was a prophet. Most people think he was Israel's greatest prophet, non-Jesus division. Uh, he's a preacher. He's a reformer, and he's a miracle worker. And that's who we're going to begin to follow around this morning. Bible scholar Tom Constable said that the purpose of First and Second Kings, they were written to record history, but more important, to teach the lessons of history. And as we read the story of Elijah and Elisha later, we're going to learn some lessons from history. And we're going to learn a lot about the God who's directing all history. We pick up this morning. Let's read. If you, have a, if you want to follow along, have a Bible open. I put the page number in the bulletin. I, it, I forget right now. But if you find a, a Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, you can open it right there and, and have it open. This is 1 Kings chapter 16, and we're going to begin with verse 29 so that we can know who Elijah's up against as we move forward. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And Ahab went to serve Baal and worship Baal. So, Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which Ahab built in Samaria. Verse 33. Ahab also made the Asherah. And thus, or in that manner, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In Ahab's days, Hiel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand or whom I serve, Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these, for these years except by my word. 
There's our introductory passage into the the lives of these people we're going to be following around for some time. King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, and the prophet Elijah. Now, when when you hear, if you have any, if, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, when you hear the names Ahab and Jezebel, it does something to you. Like it, it makes the, the hairs on the back of our necks stand up. It sends a, a shiver down our spine because they are synonymous with, with evil. They are the bad guys in this passage and the ones we're going to be studying for till the end of 1 Kings. I mean, we, there's a reason we don't name our daughters Jezebel. We name our Rottweilers Jezebel. Because it's, it's just an, an intimidating name with a very bad connotation for good reason. But before we really start this story, I want to do something a little different because the people in Ahab and Jezebel's day, their subjects, Israelites that they were king and queen over, would not have reacted to Ahab and Jezebel the way you and I do. They didn't have this strong negative connotation. I want to help us sort of understand, try to put ourselves in the shoes of their subjects, to to, to think of Ahab and Jezebel the way their contemporary people would have thought of them. So this morning, I want to give you something of of a campaign speech for King Ahab. I want to film a campaign ad for Ahab, king of Israel. Because most people in their days would have thought of them as a rousing success of a king. Here's why. Ahab would have marketed his reign, his administration as following in his daddy's very capable footsteps. As we read, Ahab's dad was a guy named Omri, very powerful, very popular. In some ways, Omri and Ahab are kind of like uh, the bizarro version of David and Solomon. Omri is the guy that brings the northern kingdom to the height of its power, and then Ahab enjoys and expands upon it. Omri is the guy that moved the capital of, some, of, of the northern kingdom to a place called Samaria and built Samaria into a, a fortress, a walled fortress. Hundreds of years later, when those extremely powerful um, Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom, it takes, a, it takes even, the, even the Assyrians a long time to defeat Samaria. And it was a very big deal that they did because it was such a strong city that Omri built. Omri, we know not from 1 Kings, but actually from Moabite history. Archaeology taught us that King Omri completely subjugated Israel's old enemy, Moab, the Moabites. So that made him very, would have made him very popular. And then sort of the the coup de grace for Omri, he established this powerful alliance with the Phoenicians. Now, the Phoenicians were like the UPS or the FedEx of the ancient Near East. They didn't make all that much stuff, but they shipped everything 
everywhere. And when Omri established an alliance with Phoenicia, that would have opened worldwide markets to everything grown or produced in Israel. And it would have brought all of these goods from from everywhere else in the world right to the markets of Israel, which people would have loved. So that's, that's sort of the Israel that Ahab inherits. And he would have marketed himself as carrying on his very popular father's policies. We read that Ahab ruled for 22 years, which is a good long time for a king in that part of the world for those days. And it was a 22 years of relative peace and stability. And anytime there were hiccups, he always had somebody uh, that he could blame that would very easily explain away why it wasn't his fault, like the drought we learn about today. When we think of Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, we very rightly, by the way, but we think of it as, a, as an evil, as a disgrace. Not so to most people back then. We're told in our passage that Jezebel was the son of, uh, of a king. She was a princess um, and she was Sidonian, but we can just read that as Phoenician. Tyre and Sidon were the, the two leading cities of the Phoenicians. So this, this marriage to Jezebel was less a love story and more economic policy. This was uh, King Ahab. Maybe this could have even been arranged by his father. We don't know. But this is cementing, writing in ink, in stone, this alliance between Israel and the UPS of the day, the Phoenicians. The way in the ancient world from 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 the ancient Near East all the way through Europe, all the way through uh, history till very modern times, the way nations made firm alliances was to intermarry. If I were the, the king of this place, if I gave my daughter to the prince of that place, I had a vested interest, interest in seeing that royal family succeed and last. Because if that royal family got overthrown, I would know what would happen to my daughter and my grandkids. This is how, this is how very firm alliances were made. And so the marriage of Ahab to Jezebel would have let people know, hey, the good times are going to last. The price increases since we've been doing business with the Phoenicians. Here's how we're going to make that permanent. So at least initially, this marriage would have been very popular in Israel. We know from elsewhere in 1 Kings that Ahab established relative peace with the southern neighbor who was their sworn enemy, uh, the Jews or Judah. We know that because uh, Ahab married off his daughter to the crown prince of Judah. Athaliah was her name, not a nice person. More on that a different time. And then finally, there's this really weird story at the end of chapter 16 that I just read about a guy, it says the guy that built Jericho. 
It's a very, it seems like a very strange story, and it seems like it has nothing to do with anything. Like, why is this here? And there's a couple of kids who die. Very strange. But I want to tell you that that would have been the rebuilding. This building of Jericho would have been a foreign policy, uh, national defense, home run for Ahab. If you read that story, in English it can sound like the rebuilding of Jericho just sort of happened to happen while Ahab was king. That's not true. This is Ahab's policy. This is a part of his reign. And this would have been a huge deal. Because, and the reason we don't catch it when we read it, is because we don't know the geography. We don't have the map memorized. Here's why this was such a big deal that Ahab rebuilt the walls of Jericho and made, them in, made Jericho into a fortress again. An Israeli fortress that sort of owned by Ahab in Israel. Here's why that was such a big deal. Because Jericho ain't in Israel. Jericho is in Judah. It's right next to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, is at the top of the hill. Jericho is at the bottom of the same hill. If you're old like me, you remember a place called West Berlin, don't you? West Berlin was this weird situation where the NATO countries, uh, the United States and France and Britain, they sort of owned a city, West Berlin, inside communist-controlled Soviet Union controlled East Germany. That's a little bit like what Ahab has pulled off. He makes a stronghold city right next to the capital of his ancient enemy. But he's established peace with those, and apparently he's a good negotiator. And that, all of that, is why King Ahab would have been so popular, and he would appreciate your vote this November. Now, he wasn't elected, and I wouldn't vote for him anyway. I, I just want you to realize that people would have been either hardcore supporters or more than willing to look the other way at any of his seeming shortcomings because we are secure under Ahab. We're safe under Ahab. We are rich under Ahab. And after all, what really matters in our rulers is getting the right policies. That's what really matters, isn't it? Actually, no. And we see that nowhere clearer than in King Ahab. Policies and economics are not all that matters in a ruler. Ahab's reign was probably delightful in the eyes of people who cared most about their personal security and economics. But verse 30 said, Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the sight of Yahweh than all who were before him. And then verse 33 reiterates, Ahab also, excuse me, down here, he did more to anger Yahweh, the God of Israel, than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. That is such a mouthful. 
Because Ahab comes from now a long line of really rotten people who ruled Israel. And he's the worst of them all. What made him so bad? Well, first, he followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. That was bad enough. Quickly, here's what Jeroboam, a a previous ruler, did. He set up two golden calves in different places in Israel and told Israel, here's Yahweh your God. Here's the gods that actually brought you out of slavery in Egypt. So go worship these these golden bulls. Um, a, A perversion of the worship of the one true God. And our author, we don't know who the author is of 1 Kings, by the way, but our author tells us he at least did that, but he was way worse than that. What did he do that was worse? Well, he married Jezebel. (laughs) See if you can catch something that our author is trying to emphasize that was Ahab's problem. Um, he said, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ephbaal of the Sidonians. Then Ahab worshipped and bowed to Baal. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. What's the word that gets repeated throughout there? Baal, Baal, Baal. By the way, if you pronounce this Baal or Baal, it's fine. Keep right on doing it. Uh, I revert back to Professor Williamson's Hebrew class, so sorry about that. Most of the time when you see uh, what was a Hebrew word with two of the same vowel slammed together, they're both supposed to be uh, uh, pronounced because there's a, there's a letter in Hebrew that... Anyway, never mind. Uh, that's at no extra charge, by the way. His problem was his marriage to Jezebel and the worship of a false god Baals. Worse than what Jeroboam had done in perverting the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, with those two golden bulls. These two actually tried to eradicate the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and replace that with the worship of Baal or Baal. Jezebel is a, is a princess, but a priestess. And she brings with her hordes of priests to this false god, Baal. And she, as we will see later in a later sermon, she has a policy of trying to murder, eradicate what we would call all of the pastors to Yahweh, the God of Israel. she, She tries to kill them all. He builds... Ahab does. He builds national worship places to this false god. Baal worship becomes the established religion of Israel. This is not they want religious freedom and let people choose whom they want to worship. It's far more sinister than that. A brief mention is given to, yeah, he also made an Asherah. This is a family service, so I'm going to be careful here. But Baal was a very male, masculine god. 
who was in charge of fertility because he was in charge of rain. And Asherah was his girlfriend. And if you really wanted it to rain, you went to what we would call church and did some play acting. It was incredibly immoral and incredibly wicked, and that was the national religion for a time because of these two. Now, young people, who you choose as a spouse is a massively important decision. This is a good look at why God told Israel in places in the Old Testament, you can't marry people from that place. It it was not because God's a racist. It had nothing to do with like that sort of nationality. It was because God had chosen a people, Israel, and he was in a covenant with Israel that's called the law. We're not in that covenant but it's important. And God said, because you are in this covenant with me, you cannot be in a separate covenant with someone who's not in this covenant with me. Which is why in other places in the Old Testament, we see people get married to foreigners and it's okay because they convert to Judaism, Yahwehism first. Because that's the issue. It's also why, while we are here, still in the New Testament, we are warned, we are told not to be yoked together with unbelievers. That doesn't have to be only in marriage, but it is about marriage also. Because following Jesus Christ, he said, was like putting, yoking myself to him. He said it was a yoke. A yoke is what you put work animals in back in the day. He said his yoke is easy, his burden's light, but we're supposed to be yoked to him and pulling toward him and doing his work. And if I marry someone who is not yoked to him, something's got to give here. Either I can't be who I am created to be, or I'm going to be dragging someone along kicking and screaming. It's going to be a problem. That's why I just had a a, a heartbreaking conversation just the other day with someone on the phone about this very issue. He wanted to know, am I being selfish by saying, I don't think I I can marry you if we don't. And he had some things about his faith. Is that selfish? And I said, no. No. It's you're, not being, you're being selfless because you're putting him before you. If you leave this up to your own heart and your own feelings, you'll do the selfish thing, which is marry that person. Ahab, because it was a smart financial decision, because it was a smart governing decision, Married someone he never should have married. And that takes Israel down the rabbit hole of Baal 
worship, where they will force feed Israel from the fire hose of the sewer line of Baal worship for decades. And I just, used, I just mixed about four metaphors there, but you get the idea. All right, we've got to leave Ahab and Jezebel either in the, in the worship center that they built for Baal or in their palace And talk about a story that I think is put in here because it typifies Ahab's reign. It's, again, this weird little story about a guy named Hiel from Bethel. Hiel from Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Um, Ahab orders this done, but the, the general contractor is a guy named Hiel. And what he rebuilds, it's not, now I'll save that for one sec, he re, but he rebuilds the walls of Jericho. When he begins the project, his oldest son died. When he ends the project, hangs the gates on those walls, his youngest son died. By the way, if you're looking for boy names, Segub is right there. It's just sitting right there. He'll be the only one in his class, I promise you. But, and then we are told, though the, the youngest one died when he erected his gates. The oldest one died when he dug the foundation. Just as Yahweh, or the Lord, had warned through Joshua, son of Nun. Here's why this is important. If we go to the book of Joshua, sorry. If we go to the book of Joshua, Joshua 6.26, we'll read this. The man who attempts to rebuild this city of Jericho will stand condemned before the Lord. He will lose his firstborn son when he lays its foundations and youngest son when he erects his gate, his gates, its gates. 500 years prior to the story we started today, God led Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land under the leadership of national hero Joshua. The very first part of the promised land, this land God promised to give the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very first battle was at Jericho. It wasn't much of a battle. God told the Israelites to march around that walled city, play some instruments, and get out of the way. And the walls of Jericho, as we used to sing when I was in Sunday school, came tumbling down. Now, after God did that great thing, Joshua pronounced this curse. It's not, he didn't say nobody can live in Jericho anymore. People had been living there all along. But it's never to be a military-grade fortress ever again. Anybody who rebuilds these walls gets this curse. Here's what we're supposed to learn from that. What kind of guy would spit in the face of Joshua? One of the greatest heroes, like he's, a, he's on what, if they had a Mount Rushmore, Joshua was probably on it. 
What kind of leader would look at a curse from Joshua and ignore it and spit in its face thinking he was man enough that he didn't need to listen to that? You know what kind of guy? Ahab. That's the kind of guy. Ahab may have had this kind of reasoning. Either reasoning like this, ah, that's been 500 years. Join the modern age, man. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. Or it could have been, hey, we don't worship that God anymore. We worship Baal around here. But here's what he missed. Another prophet hundreds of years after, um, after these guys, after Elijah, would write this. Listen, flowers fade. Like grass withers, flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, do you have any problem with this part of this story? If I'm right and Ahab is the one who ordered the building of those walls, why is it, why is it Hiel from Bethel whose kids die? Why is the guy following orders have to lose his sons? Or how about this? What the sons do? It's okay to be honest. You had any problem with any of that? You know what we learn? The word of the Lord stands forever and God means what he says. And we also learn It's not just the leaders who fall under the curse. Sin has real consequences. And you know what excuse does not work? Well, he started it. Well, he told me to. Right? That didn't work when you were kids. It still doesn't work today. Who we obey and follow is really, really important. And when the people we obey and follow ask us to do things that the one we really ultimately must follow says do not do, that means we can't do it. Sometimes the consequences are very obvious, but even when they're not, doesn't mean there's not consequences. Into that rotten nation. In the first verse of chapter 17, walks the prophet Elijah. He just, this is the first mention of him in the whole Bible. We don't know, we don't know any of his background. He's called Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. You know what they make in Tishbe? Tishbites. That's the only thing we know. And we don't know where that is, and that's part of the point also. He's completely anonymous. We know nothing about him. We have no idea why he can just waltz up to the king and start talking to the king. He's apparently a recognized religious leader already. But his first words are this. He walks up to this worshiper of Baal, the king, and says, Just as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve or or whom I stand before, same thing. 
There's not going to be any moisture around here until I say so. And then Elijah just walks out. No response from the king. Just Those are his first words. And here's why I included this verse with this sermon, because this is the setup of the Elijah story. Because Baal, if you were listening closely a minute ago, Baal was the god of fertility because he controlled what? Supposedly he controlled rain. And Elijah has set up this first big test. Maybe the main question of the story of Elijah is this. Who is God? Who is God? Or who's the real God? And his first words in the Bible are basically this. Hey, King Ahab, you follow this fake God that you think controls rain? Quickly, here's the story of Baal, of Baal. He stormed forth and brought the rainy season and everybody celebrated because we're going to grow lots of whatever they would grow and our cattle are going to have plenty to eat. And then he would run out of energy and every year he would be subdued by another god called Mot. And Mot was the god of death. And he would basically hogtie Baal and take him to the land of death. And that's why we'd have a dry season. But Baal would grow stronger and stronger. And next spring, he would break out and rain, uh, send rain again. So Elijah shows up and says, hey, listen, ain't going to be no rainy season this year. Ain't going to be no rainy season next year either. You know why? Because Baal's fake. My God is the one who's in control of the rain and everything else. And that is the introduction to Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. The stage is now set for us to move forward and learn all kinds of stuff about when character collides with circumstances but there's one more thing I want you to see. Because the real problem's not Ahab. Israel is in a, in a covenant with God, the law. And God said, here's the law. You do your part in the law, I'll bless you. You fail to do your part in the law, and I will curse you. And guess what one of the curses is if the people of Israel worship other gods beside him? Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Make sure you do not turn away to serve and worship other gods. Because then the anger of the Lord will erupt against you and he will close up the sky so that it does not rain and the land will not yield its produce. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Even from this introductory sermon, or passage, we have much to learn. I'll boil it down to these three. First, right here from the beginning, we can trust God is always at work, even when things are super dark. Ahab was wicked. His wife was wicked. The people were wicked. But God was preparing a Tishbite from Tishbe to show up and glorify God. And turn the hearts of the people back toward the one true God. 
That's important to remember because I know we look around at how wicked this world is. And by the way, we convince ourselves it's never been more wicked. Read your Bibles. When our government starts rounding up all of the pastors who teach about Jesus Christ and murdering us, we're getting close. And if and when that happens, God will still be at work then too. Second second thing we learn from this passage, we are reminded the only things that are good are things that God says is good. I, I, I don't care how good a decision you are facing. I don't care how good it will be for you economically, financially, excitement, popularity, influence. I don't care how good it might be. If it is something that God says is not good, it ain't good. It seems like a very simple lesson, but my, oh my, can we convince ourselves things that God says is not good in this situation is probably best. Not true. Not true. And there are consequences that we cannot control to the sin that we sin that we can convince ourselves it's good. And then the last thing, I just want to set this up for the leaders aren't the only problem. Ahab and Jezebel get all of the press but people are gobbling this up and following them wholeheartedly because they think it's ultimately worth it because what they're getting out of it. Who we follow, who we listen to is super important. So in the coming months, we're going we're gonna to learn lots of stuff about how God's at work, how what God calls good is good, even when it's super duper difficult. And I'm going to be encouraging us to check our hearts because the easiest way to live is to look at our leaders and think of how wicked they are and how much better I am than them, and so I must be doing okay without checking if, if my heart is really locked in where it ought to be locked in. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for what you have in store for us as we follow along the story of your servant, Elijah, and the, the unfaithful Ahab and Jezebel. God, I I pray that you would impress upon us the importance of having hearts for you in a culture that is more and more estranged from you. Help us to not excuse bad behavior and sin because in in this current state of affairs, it just must be done. Help us to cling to what you call good and depend upon you to bring the rain in your timing. We love you, Lord. Have your way in us as we study Elijah. In Christ's name, amen. Stand up. Let's finish our time this morning.